Good morning from Washington, which has just announced that stay-at-home policies will remain in effect until early June. We're happy you could join us this Thursday for another of our virtual roundtables. This is the first one using the Zoom platform that has been ubiquitous for those working at home and for those working on Saturday Night Live. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the virtual roundtables, as well as whether you prefer these teleconferences or the option to have the video that Zoom provides. Feel free to shoot us an email after this morning's discussion. While COVID-19 has left many of us isolated in our homes, quarantined to help lower the reproduction rate of the virus, it has also left many countries isolated from each other. A wave of nationalism sweeping many Western nations in the past few years resulted in many governments who are now reticent to engage outside their borders, and the virus has exacerbated that tendency as national leaders are focused inward more than at any time since before World War II. Governments all over the world have created different policies, closed borders, and seen international trade plummet as economies temporarily lower. Discussions and decisions by the United States regarding NATO, the United Nations, the JCPOA nuclear deal with Iran, and the Paris Accords had created a somewhat strained relationship between our nation and our European allies before COVID. Now, however, countries seek to cooperate where they can toward testing, treatment, and a vaccine, while obviously looking to within to protect their citizens, the transatlantic relationship is, to put it lightly, in flux. So where will COVID take us on the diplomatic path? Will we emerge with an EU more determined than ever to chart its own course with the United States as only an ally rather than a partner and friend? Or will our nation and our cohorts across the sea grow together as people all over the globe struck by this pandemic work together toward its destruction and carry that cooperation on into a post-COVID world? Will the answer, as almost seems to always be the case, lie somewhere in between? We have a great panel to help answer those questions from both sides of the Atlantic and one of the staunchest supporters of both FMC and the transatlantic relationship to help moderate that discussion. Bart Gordon served Tennessee in the United States House of Representatives for more than 25 years before retiring and becoming a board member here at FMC. During his time on the Hill, he played a major role in developing multiple pieces of legislation that became law encouraging American technology and innovation. Following his retirement, in honor of his work on the transatlantic partnership between the United States and France, he was awarded that country's highest civilian honor, the insignia of officer in the Legion of Honor. We're looking forward to Congressman Gordon moderating a great discussion between two panelists, and I'll leave it to him to introduce them. Congressman? First, let me welcome all of our listeners today. We have a really a large group, and I'm glad this is a, a, a subject that is of interest to everyone. Uh, I see a lot of friends, old friends on the list. I wish I could give you all a shout out, but we're going to we're going to move right along. Let me give you sort of the rules of the road here, and then I'll introduce our guest. We've got a 45-minute discussion. Uh, our all of, we'll call the ones that are listening the participants uh, will be muted. You have sent in some questions, and so I will try to ask those questions. Um, our guest will open up with their statement uh, and have some concluding statement. And what I'll probably do is ask them each to ask each other a question maybe along the way that, that might be of interest. And so uh, let's see, Jeff, why don't you put your, open up again, there we go. Uh, so uh, Congressman Fortenberry, uh, it represents Nebraska's first congressional district. He's a member of the Appropriations Committee. You know, Jeff, we used to say that you don't authorize on appropriation and you don't appropriate on, on authorizing, but that's sort of a thing of the past now. You're the only one that's getting things done. And so the Appropriations Committee really has become even more important. And I'm sure that the folks in Nebraska didn't hurt their feelings that you're on the chairman of the, or ranking member of the Ag Subcommittee. Uh, you're also on the Foreign Operations Subcommittee, and that's important to us. And we thank you for being a co-chair of the Congressional Study Group on Europe for the FMC. 
And uh, also very happy to have uh, my neighbor, um, Ambassador um, Stravos uh, Lambertisti, Lambert, Lambert, <clears throat> Lambri. <laughs> Um, my tongue didn't work quite as well. <laughs> it's, 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 it's one of the toughest names in the neighborhood. But Stravos is the ambassador. It's going to tougher than Obama or Kushner. Or <laughs> the other people in the neighborhood. Yeah, yeah we're, we're, we live, we're cl live close to each other, and the Secret Service is on each end of our block, so you have to be able to come in. So it's a little bit difficult now. Um, the ambassador... Uh, you know, has such a, a long resume, just like Jeff, so, and you've had them all, so I'm not going to go through all of that, but I do want to point out that he was a foreign minister from his uh, home country of Greece, and to the best of my knowledge, you're the only ambassador from the European Union that also served in the parliament. Not only that, he served two terms in the European parliament, as well as being the vice chair of the European parliament, so that gives you particular clout uh, in Brussels, having a a foot in both um, branches there. So um, that's unusual. Congratulations. So, Travis, why don't we start with you and have a, an introductory remark, then, Jeff, you can have your remarks. Thank you. Thanks, Bart. It's, uh, it's great to, to, uh, to be here, and thank you for hosting this fantastic discussion. Uh, we had a dinner uh, when we, 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 at the time we were still see each other uh, at my residence. Uh, with uh, uh, organized by the former members association and it was uh, a, a fantastic affair uh, a great uh, bipartisan discussion on the relationship and I would all rem always remember this fondly so I'm really glad to be here Bart uh, uh, Jeff great to see you the uh, there I suppose we are in three parallel battles now and I think that in all those three battles only if the EU and the US work together we can come out uh, with flying colors uh, the first one is a health battle obviously the second one is an economic recovery battle, and the third one is a narrative battle. Um, the, um, uh, the health battle is very clear. We, we, no, we were hit by uh, a, um, a very dangerous, uh, very lethal, uh, very fast-expanding virus. Um, and uh, we uh, each have taken different measures uh, in, our, um, uh, in our respective uh, countries to address it. Um, some of them have been more effective than others, but, uh, but learning from each other's experience and fundamentally working with each other to develop the vaccines and develop the medicines necessary uh, to be able to make this uh, not disappear, uh, but at least be um, uh, less debilitating to our economies and our societies and to our people's li lives. Uh, that is something that work together is important. Uh, the economic recovery battle, uh, battle is a big one. Um, one reality has not changed uh, from COVID, and that is that we are each other's uh, most uh, um, influential and most important trading and investment partners. Uh, U.S. companies invest in Europe uh, today more than they invest anywhere else in the world, and they make more profits in Europe than anywhere else in the world. Um, this is because the European Union in its single market didn't just happen magically. The EU created that market, uh, is, uh, is the biggest, the most open, most free market in the world that allows US companies to set up shop in any corner of Europe and then trade and invest with 400 million of the most uh, prosperous consumers in the world. Uh, and likewise, uh, the biggest investors in the United States today are European companies. Millions of jobs are created around the Atlantic. So what happens in the recovery in either side of the Atlantic affects us. Uh, if Europe does well, that is great news for the US economy. And if the US does well, that's great news for our economy. 
the, uh, the numbers uh, right now are quite devastating. Um, uh, we expect uh, about a 6.5 drop, uh, a contraction of the, of the U.S. economy in, uh, in 2020, about a 7.4 drop in the, in the EU economy. Next year, we will rebound, uh, but we will still, by the end of 2021, not be to where we were at the end of 2019. So how it is that we can make sure that we open up uh, our economies and that we encourage free and open trade around the world and fair trade, uh, that is not based on government subsidies, big government subsidies of, uh, of uh, companies, uh, an economic model which we've seen many of our unfair competitors uh, follow around the world uh, over many years, uh, that we managed to, uh, to ensure that open is going to be huge. And of course, the third battle is the narratives. Um, there, we do see a number of countries going around the world and fundamentally telling the world that Western democracies are not good enough. Uh, we have not been good at fighting the virus. Uh, we have been selfish. And what's more than that, we have been fighting with each other over the past few years. Uh, what I very often say is that when the EU, EU and the EU fight, um, as sometimes we do, we, we make headlines. Uh, but when we work together, we make history. And uh, this is what we have to be focusing now in the next uh, months, um, making history again, ensuring uh, that we don't fall into the traps of those who try to tell us, running around the world like you, Mother Teresa's, that they are the ones that are helping and caring about everyone else, and we, we, we are not, and we are fighting with each other, and we are selfish. That is entirely uh, untrue, uh, and it's going to be a real challenge, uh, but and a real opportunity for us uh, to reverse those narratives. Thank you, uh, Ambassador. Jeff, I have an easy question. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, sorry, go ahead and make your statement. Uh, well, sure. Just uh, I'll, I'll try to be brief, uh, Congressman Gordon. Thank you so much. Pleasure to see you, Mr. Ambassador, as well. Thank you for your thoughtful remarks. And um, they're serious remarks, but they are thoughtful and thought-provoking. And um, as you were speaking, I, I, I thought it might be best as well for me to just touch briefly on uh, what I see where I'm at on a local level, national level, uh, touch on briefly on some of the problems but they maybe point to some of the emerging opportunity that I don't think we've really grasped yet, that once we all fight our way through this pandemic, this virus, which has caused so much suffering and trauma uh, here in the United States and around the world, uh, let's look at maybe some of the tectonic plate shifts that, that may occur from this and the additional opportunities. So I'm in Lincoln, Nebraska, and um, my congressional district is about 600,000 people. It's about 60% urban. and The majority of that, uh, outside of that, is corn and cattle. Uh, three Native American reservations, uh, two with land, one uh, without land, but nonetheless an active uh, Native American reservation. And then um, two major pieces of military infrastructure, uh, off at Air Force Base and Strategic Command. Strategic Command is our nuclear nerve center for uh, America's protection and the world's protection in many ways. And um, in speaking with some of our military leaders recently, the, the pandemic doesn't discriminate. It doesn't, uh, we're not on hold in terms of potential adversaries continuing to move and connive. And that's one thing to keep in mind. We're all uh, seriously distracted and necessarily so uh, by trying to fight this to protect our healthcare system, to protect individuals and families and to protect uh, here, particularly small businesses. So that as we do two things at once, um, uh, care for those who are suffering 
and try to race towards some better treatment or cure, and at the same time, take steps to ensure our economic well-being, that hopefully the alignment of those two factors in the coming weeks, perhaps months, will assure our well-being overall as, again, we, we emerge out of this. But it is, it is traumatic. And here in, here in America, we, we, we have both a centralized and decentralized system, both a public response and a private response, which makes it complex. Uh, in a vacuum like this, where something hits the entire country, the, the demand for the public response in a centralized fashion is, necess is necessary. Uh, and yet at the same time, particularly in healthcare response, we have a decentralized system of authorities all the way down to local health departments and mayors trying to do the best they can with limited information and with this disease hitting different places differently up to governors who do have the, the more pronounced authority for closures and encouraging social distancing up to the executive branch level where we have emergency responses in place but the nation does turn to the centralized authority for broader guidance. However, we have a private sector manufacturing supply logistical system for protective equipment, uh, vaccines and, and public funds for treatment and cures. So all of that becomes a, a very big mix and somewhat difficult to manage again because of uh, different levels of authority responding differently and again, a dependence upon government on the private sector to deliver goods. That's why you saw this early scramble and a lot of confusion and difficulty. It's sorting itself out now, but particularly with protective equipment. You're still seeing, again, a race in the private market for both treatments, but also testing equipment. And again, that's caused opportunity for innovation and solutions for those who are entrepreneurial but also uh, supply chain logistical problems um, because it's so fragmented. And so we're, we're wrestling with that. Uh, there'll be a lot of lessons learned, but I think for the broader purposes of the call today, in terms of alliances, uh, partnerships, particularly transatlantic, but again, tectonic plate shifts in, in terms of economic um, uh, trading options, again, uh, partnering for mutual well-being and security with friends overseas, what are we going to see? <clears throat> There's a huge amount of scrutiny of China and China's response. Uh, from my perspective, China was more interested in controlling information than controlling the spread of the virus. Um, before this happened, we had already begun to dig into our vulnerability as America and dependence on China for drugs and protective equipment. Uh, a huge amount of the precursor in drugs is made in China, and that creates a level of, of vulnerability for us, particularly as we are in a period of deepening distrust, uh, hiding, heightening differences of systems, uh, not understanding the intention of where China wants to go. And what this is going to create is significant movement of demanding American manufacturing, particularly for things that leave us vulnerable like drugs, return to America or the Americas or, apps or relationships that are trustworthy and sound, particularly with European friends and allies. Uh, th this is a broader tectonic plate shift that, that I am, you're starting to see, and I, I, I think will be made real, not just in the medium and long term, but, but the short term. So I'll, start, I'll stop there, Bart. Thank you again for uh, 
allowing me to participate in the forum today. You know, Jeff, I, I don't think there's a conversation in Washington that goes very long, or, or even in probably Lincoln, where China doesn't come into place at some point. You know, and whether it is, you know, level playing field, fair trade, whether it is the um, now we're seeing that they are apparently trying to hack in to uh, our vaccine research. Um, and in Europe, um, uh, it's, China has been called a strategic competitor. Um, and so, and then, and then also, you can also bring Russia into this, and that Russia just recently, uh, there was you know, large-scale hackings in, in, um, uh, in Germany by the Russians. So does this crisis bring us together you know, in trying to work to solve how we deal with, uh, it's a pretty strong term, but almost rogue nations that are playing outside the rules. What's your, how can we work together to deal with those two challenges? Uh, yes, absolutely. We, 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 are we are discussing those things uh, very extensively. Let's take the first one, the, the economic. Let me focus on two competitions here now. The, the economic one, if you like, and then the values one, because they both are very important. So when it comes to, to the economy, Europe indeed has indicated that China can be a partner in some issues, such as fighting climate change or, uh, or non-proliferation. Uh, but it is an unfair economic competitor and many other issues, and we're taking measures against that. Uh, huge uh, government footprint of the economy, huge subsidies, uh, stealing intellectual property, um, and, and then trying to take advantage of all that, competing unfairly against our companies around the world and even in Europe. And then we've also stated that China is a systemic rival when it comes to issues of governance and values and human rights and all these things. Uh, so it's a very complex relationship. Um, but it's one that we are approaching very clear-eyed uh, uh, and, uh, and uh, very clear-headed in terms of facing head-on. Now, take the economy. Uh, I think as, as, uh, as uh, Congressman uh, Fortenberry said very correctly, there are, uh, we've all realized that we've had dependencies on supply chains for medicine, which are critical materials, um, that were, in the case of Europe, uh, fundamentally from uh, China and India. These are the two countries that we got more than 80% virtually of all our medicine. Uh, and we realized during the COVID crisis that those supply chains actually broke down. So there was an, an international world market breakdown. Uh, so of course there are serious discussions about uh, how it is that we can create more strategic autonomy as Europeans as well, when it comes to procuring and producing some of these uh, fundamental things for the next crisis as well. But this has not turned us into, into arguing that we should uh, sort of on-source production for everything, medicine, and then maybe even beyond that. And that is really the, the uh, to me, sort of the dividing line, the, the fault line in this debate that we have to make sure we fall on the right side of. Uh, it would be unrealistic and frankly, economically catastrophic to take a lesson out of this crisis that is that we have to start producing everything that we can in our borders. In essentially, that would be saying that international trade is useless when it comes to economic development. Uh, that, um, you know, uh, and that would be a mistake. Even think about the next, just focus on the medicine stuff. We don't know what the next virus will be. We don't know what it will require. Will it be ventilators? Will it be something else? Will it be medicine A or medicine B? Uh, trying to produce everything onshore uh, would probably mean that in a few years, a number of companies will be bankrupt because it will be basically just stacking all these things in some repository and not being able to sell them. 
So very important for us, I think, Americans and Europeans, both between us and the level of the G7 and G20, to be establishing a roadmap, uh, an action plan on how it is that international supply chains, when it comes to the next, the next uh, medical crisis, uh, will function well and will not have a scrambling for materials, while at the same time, indeed, we have to figure out, and the companies have to figure out if it makes sense, to produce more internally as well. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Now, but, but let's keep in mind that danger, because if the discussion goes, well, we shouldn't be relying on anyone abroad, on any foreigner, that would, for us, certainly, Europeans and Americans, that would be a catastrophe. There are 15 million jobs created every year across the Atlantic because of the trade investment that we do. Um, we have 50% of the world's GDP, one third of the world's trade, and we are very fair uh, traders. So if you take Americans and Europeans, we respect labor laws, uh, we respect environmental standards, we don't produce cheap goods, uh, dirty goods, just to sell them fast and cheap to others and, and uh, flood their markets. So we should be able to harness a joint power, a joint openness, a joint supply chains. When it comes to values, Bart, that gets really tricky. Um, because as I said at the beginning, uh, we have countries out there that have been for a while um, doing what we have been doing, to be honest, with trade. So, except doing it in a way that, that, that we certainly don't like. So, with every container that leaves Europe or America, in that container, you don't just have goods. You also have our values. So, when we ship a good in our container, we also ship labor, ship labor standards, non-corruption, open free competition, um, environmental standards, all those things. Now, other countries are doing the same increasingly. They are shipping their own values in their own containers, but they're very different values. And they're trying to ship them not just to us, but also to other countries around the world, in Africa, in Asia, uh, and Latin America. Um, so we have to be very aware that as we're coming out of this crisis, there are elements of this crisis that indicate to us that fundamental rights are playing a major role and should in our discussion. We're talking about tracing apps. Tracing apps, you know what? That's a great thing. We absolutely need, need, need them to, to get out of, of this crisis. <coughs> Tracing apps, in, interesting, however, move surveillance from outside the body surveillance to inside the body surveillance. So in many ways, a tracing app for health starts looking at what your body feels inside. You know, your blood pressures, your uh, temperatures, all these things. The same exact kind of measurements can tell a government or a company, if we're not careful about this, how we feel when we look at a picture, when we listen to someone talk, are we scared, are we not, are we happy, are we sad? These apps can know better than we do ourselves. So a real question comes out here now, when we're facing the challenge of artificial intelligence in the future, which will be the future of, of, of all of us, who's gonna be setting the standards? Is it gonna be the people who are using these apps today to repress? Uh, and I'm looking at places like Xinjiang in China, where, uh, where you know, face recognition and voice recognition and movement recognition are being used to repress uh, a whole people or, or Russia or other countries around the world? Or are we going to be setting the standards? And are we going to do it in a way that is actually human rights protective or not? These are the challenges, I think, that we have. Uh, and these are the opportunities we have to work together to address them. Well, you've given us a lot to think about there. Um, <laughs> Actually, we could have a uh, we could have a week seminar. Uh, if we came out at the right end, we'd uh, the whole world would be better off at, after that. So, Jeff, you want to respond? Not respond, but have any comment uh, to that? No. I, again, the ambassador, the the word uh, that keeps coming to my mind when I listen to the ambassador is insightful, thoughtful. Um, 
very clear. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. I, in, in this regard, just briefly, I think that we're going to develop something called TT. Uh, yeah, let me be careful with my acronyms because I don't want to reference any old trade agreement, but what I call TTP, uh, Trusted Trade Partner. And what that means is the standards uh, which allow people to actually be in some kind of economic solidarity include certain social metrics as well. And if people aren't able to check those things off, in other words, they have lax environmental standards, they have deficient labor, labor standards. Uh, you can go down a list again of social metrics and outcomes, which are fundamentally the purpose of any society, any business. Profits ought to be gateways to, again, community well-being. If that's not the case, if it's leading to degradation, whether that's in terms of human rights or the environment or any other metric, then we have to ask ourselves, what is the purpose of being in relationship? Is it just a transactional, a materialistic relationship that is actually undermining the fundamental principle of the values proposition that you just so eloquently stated? Again, it, it comes back to that values proposition, and this is one of the, 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 the outcomes of this virus that I spoke of earlier that we're gonna wrestle with philosophically and actually may apply analytically by saying, do you meet these standards and criteria? If not, what is the purpose of this relationship? We, can, we will continue to be open and inviting because we believe, um, particularly in the Transatlantic Alliance, that there are certain philosophical fundamentals that begin with one single principle, and it's this, human dignity, that every person ought to matter. And when you have repressive systems whose economics lead to more of that type of repression or other forms of degradation, then why are we subsidizing that in effect? Why are we allowing our shipping can container with that type of values to, to, to uh, as you so well put, to, to basically be overrun by another set. So, but at the same time, that's a delicate issue to un, unwind that or to confront that abruptly might be more destructive in the short term than is worth it. But as this conversation is doing to elevate this from abstraction to actual concept to realities of certain metrics that are the standards that are met by reasonable people who have difference of cultural issues, but accept that single principle, that of human dignity, I think ought to be informed the way in which the 21st century economic system is shaped. And, and may I say, I, I think absolutely, Congressman, I, I, I fully agree. Uh, so how do we engage then with a country like China, let's say, uh, with whom we have some very serious uh, values, but also economic differences? Um, our feeling is Europe is, in Europe is that we have to be engaging very strongly, very, very sincerely and clearly. Um, no, uh, uh, no discounts on our approach, uh, but engaging nevertheless. I mean, China is uh, a huge country. It's uh, very out there in the world. Uh, even if you wanted to, you cannot wish that away. So the question is, how do we actually bring them down and try to rein them in into an international legal order, international legal system where they as well given the uh, outsized role that they increasingly wish to play, uh, should feel the, uh, the uh, responsibility to participate in. Uh, we're having discussions now on the, on the WTO, for example. Uh, very important to be able to um, reform the WTO, but ensure that we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, as it were. So we need an international referee. If we don't have it, then every country will be going out doing their own thing. And I'm not sure we're gonna be on the winning side of that equation. Precisely because we're not willing to do anything it takes, as it were, in the, in the wrong side of this 
uh, on the, of, of this side to, uh, to sell uh, uh, cheap goods and cheap services. Um, so, uh, but at the same time, uh, it's very important to ensure that the WTO rules, uh, in addition to what they do today, um, also take into account uh, state subsidies, uh, especially the particularly egregious ones, uh, and uh, address them and don't allow countries to be able to just continue without any consequences. So this is where the discussion, if you like, gets, gets uh, complex for me, uh, because the instinct is to say, uh, you know what, there are some good countries, some bad countries, and that's it. But in fact, we both know that in the international, especially trade economic system and value system, um, uh, it's, uh, there, there are also many shades of uh, gray, or if you like, there are many abilities for us to be able to change the equation by being together effectively addressing a particular issue. So I've been talking to the administration here, to Congress, to others, to ensure that when we try to deal with economic challenges such as China's, we do not assume that we can simply just do it alone, but that we combine the strength of the two biggest markets in the world to make sure that we can do it together. I would certainly agree with that. Very and fair I, comment. I would say, I think if we could put uh, two of you together in a room, even with social distancing, you could come up with that agreement uh, quickly. That's what it's going to take, the power of both of our economies. But let me move on a little bit beyond, if I could, Jeff. You'd mentioned suffering. Um, and my grandfather used to tell me that the most important road in the county was one in front of your house. So every country, obviously, is concerned about themselves. But uh, we can't get the pandemic under control if it's wildly uh, spreading in undeveloped countries. Um, you know, there's going to be, uh, again, an enormous um, suffering in these countries through famine and a variety of things. So you're on the subcommittee of uh, foreign affairs and state. Uh, you're going to be facing the largest deficits that I guess our country's ever faced and probably the largest international needs that we've ever had. How do you see balancing that? And how do you see potentially getting the synergy of working with uh, Europe uh, in harmony in that, in that effort? Um, a great question. Let me answer it in two ways. Um, as I mentioned earlier in the call, I represent more than 600,000 people in, in a very diverse urban rural district with a lot of layers of, of uh, differences and yet at the same time held together by something that we uh, in a heartfelt sense called Nebraska values, which are the idea uh, that community matters, the person matters, uh, hard work, self um, responsibility for self and neighbor all matter. Uh, with that said, um, in my own office today, before I get ready to come on the plane back to Washington DC, I'll check in. We are going person by person to see if, if they need additional help with getting that economic support check. If they are on disability, is their check coming in? Is the farmer getting sufficient help when he's applying for the disaster loan? Is the person who is running the small business, the hair salon, did their money come in from the Paycheck Protection Program? What are we gonna do in June as we start to st slowly open? These are the fundamental questions right before me, the county road, as you just said. And honestly, um, using this type of technology and having more time to be present in the district. Um, it's in the midst of all this suffering, frankly, it's been a very gratifying time to me because it goes you, brings you right back to the reason you got in this business to begin with. It's about public service 
and being there for people in need with the authoritative weight of good that can only come and sometimes from, from the government. So that's one thing. At the same time, those of us who have been given and entrusted with this responsibility to, to think clearly about how to keep our systems safe, which we so much take for granted, are we're not quite there yet because we've been so disrupted by taking care of things at home. But probably next, inter wade into fairly quickly the question you just raised. And it reminds me of the time in which Secretary Pompeo came before the Subcommittee on State and Foreign Operations. And I asked him a question. I said, Mr. Secretary, I said, how much, uh, I said, America gives about $25 billion a year in humanitarian aid. How much does China give? And I had never seen the Secretary of State stumped for an answer. And I didn't ask, ask him it to try to stump him. I just asked him it, it to, as a rhetorical question to try to make the point that we're making today if you want to be a member of the responsible community of nations, there are certain standards, ethics, norms, fundamentals that you're going to have to adhere to if you want to be a player on the world stage and claim superpower rights as China is a superpower, uh, then there comes along a parallel set of responsibilities. There will, I, I think Bart, to the heart of your question, most Americans uh, were, were very generous and they, they don't necessarily know how small the amount of aid is compared to the overall budget. But once you walk through that with persons who raise the question and say, this is for three reasons. One is we just don't sit around and watch other people die. It's not who we are. Number two is we do benefit from this mutuality uh, this subsidy creates the platform for ongoing trust and mutuality in which we benefit both economically and culturally. And finally, um, stability is the precondition for security. As a former Secretary of Defense once said, if you cut out this foreign aid, then send me more bullets. In other words, all of these things work hand in hand to create the conditions for human flourishing and well-being. But that's one of the considerations, again, if China is going to try to leverage economic nationalism, it has to redefine what its vision is as it claims superpower status in the world. It has to, again, adhere to superpower responsibilities. And that doesn't just mean trying to position Chinese leaders in key multilateral institutions to begin to take over those leadership positions. It means that some sort of shared sacrifice around the fundamental questions facing humanity, beginning with human dignity, uh, have to be embraced by that country. Now, the ambassador is very right. How do we move again from this abstract conversation about that to implementation of some kind of reality checks on that? Well, I do think, though, that China is reeling from the effects of this worldwide scrutiny and the reality that America may began to pull up some stakes real quickly, particularly in areas like drug production, and say, we're coming home. And those things, if, if the intention uh, of China isn't changed for the sake of purity of, of, of conscience, nationalist, nationalistic conscience, uh, the economic leverage of that type of imposition may, uh, may focus the mind a little better.
it, it might not, but there are multilateral platforms like the WTO, as the ambassador mentioned, uh, that have to play a key role in leveraging what I call trusted trading partnerships. Bart, Bart, can I jump in for a second on this uh, on this question to say to say two things? Um, I I, uh, I I fully I fully agree uh, with uh, with Congressman Fortenberry um, on the analysis, both the domestic emphasis and the international one. Um, I would say that in both we have a challenge uh, as as uh, Western democracies. When it comes to the domestic element, yes, the virus is hitting everyone uh, equally. But maybe not. So if we look at the people who are being hit uh, in our societies, very often you find uh, the elderly being more hit or poorer people being more hit uh, than others. Uh, and when it comes to the economic livelihood consequences, you will see that, for example, whereas we can, because of our jobs, sit and continue functioning effectively uh, through VTC, that many blue collar workers can't because their job is to be on the factory line and when that line is closed, then they can't do it. Or, or some farmers, maybe some others. So in the end of the day, um, there are inequalities that are coming out of this. And usually uh, populists around the world have been playing on such inequalities more effectively than anything else uh, to pass a message that democracies don't work, that you just need you know, someone who is more authoritarian to be solving you know, a terrible, bad system that democracy is. So we ought to be focusing here. In Europe, what we're doing right now is looking at the future funds, there are going to be trillions uh, that we're going to be giving for the recovery to our member states and trying to target this recovery funding, particularly to those countries and those regions of Europe that have been most hit. So it's not just a blanket here, take it, but it's, it's an effort to, to ensure both economic development where it's most needed, but also... Uh, showing solidarity to the people that most need it. When it comes to the world stage, um, solidarity is not charity. As, as the congressman said very correctly, I mean, if, you know, we, we, we can deal with the virus here, but if it's spreading around the world, especially in many uh, countries that are poorer with bad health systems, other things like that, uh, then we will not be safe. We will not be able to open up. We will not be able to be out there in the world as we normally are trading, investing. Uh, trying to bring peace, uh, security. So we, again, in Europe, have dedicated 20 billion euros immediately, more than $22 billion, uh, just to support uh, countries around the world in need right now. Uh, the, the, the U.S. has, uh, has uh, already carved out about $2 billion, I believe, dollars, uh, maybe around two and a half. But we are discussing on weekly phone calls between us uh, what kind of aid uh, we are planning, we are giving, trying to coordinate, make sure this is right. And then the values also uh, come in. Uh, two things that are gonna be out there again, uh, you know, after this is over. One is uh, uh, how we grow our economies. Uh, in Europe, we have decided we're gonna put a huge emphasis on digital and, and, and sustainable green development, let's say, because we think that's where it's going. We don't wanna go back to the old ways. But then um, there's also the issue of uh, security. We're forgetting this in this crisis. Uh, security, uh, terrorism, um, you know, uh, threats, uh, hybrid threats, things like that. Uh, and that also brings me back to, to values. Um, Bart, let me, let me finish. I, I'm sorry for taking a little too long on this, but this has been also my past life running human rights for the European Union. The, we're the biggest development aid donors in the world, Americans and Europeans, the biggest humanitarian aid donors. 
okay, that sounds kind of abstract. Let's bring it down to basics. What's so scary about smart girls? Why did uh, Boko Haram in Nigeria abduct, you know, hundreds of girls from school? You know, why did Malala Yousafzai a few years back, you know, get shot in the head uh, by the Taliban in Pakistan? You know, why in, in Iraq, you know, why did ISIS abduct and rape and forcefully marry, you know, hundreds of Yazidi girls? What is so scary about smart girls? And the answer is, to us at least, the answer is, smart girls tend to become educated girls and educated girls tend to become empowered women. And the last thing that any terrorist wants is an empowered society. They want societies with big black holes of power that they can fill in with their hatred and with their violence. So you want to fight terrorists? Yes, have the guns, have the educate girls and boys. Look at what they hate the most, human rights, and fight to protect it. What does development aid do? It builds schools. It educates girls and boys. It concretely makes a difference on the ground in ways that are not just simply I educate someone, but spill over to security, livelihood, empowerment. It is changing and giving hope to a world that others are going out simply trying to sell the cheap products to and keep repressed. That's what Americans and Europeans should be understanding what we're doing. We're not being charitable. We are doing the right thing to not export any values we have. Human rights are international values. To ensure that people everywhere in the world can, can enjoy the rights that we in our democracies have. And if we manage to do this successfully, if and after Corona is over, I am very optimistic about the future of the relationship. Well, it's comforting to me to know that you're having those conversations. Um, uh, when I had open meetings and people complained about foreign um, uh, aid, I would just tell them it was another form of defense spending. Uh, Jeff, why don't you close us off or close us out? Well, again, um, I, I love the last comments of the ambassador. Um, I'm in my home right now. I have uh, my wife, Celeste, and I, we, we've been blessed with five beautiful daughters. Uh, four of whom are in the house right now. Uh, one's in college and two are in college in other states. And I told them the other day, I said, girls, I, I really like having you back. This has just been a wonderful time of meaning, family regeneration. And my 21-year-old shot back at me. She said, that's because you can leave. <laughs> but it, I'm a 21-year-old in my house today. I think I'm happier that she's here than she is that she's here. I, I, I completely understand. I go to college with her friends and all these things. Yeah, <laughs> I completely understand. The, the reality, um, I want to go back to something I said earlier that we didn't get a chance to unpack. It's the, the reality that maybe this uh, moment not only reaches, forces us to reach back and think about fundamentals as we're doing in this conversation, but think about how this type of technology that we're using right now is going to create a digital leap. Uh, I've been very worried for a long time that this uh, technology is creating busyness, not productivity in the deeper sense. And I have to, I'm seduced by it myself. I get a message every day for average phone time use and I, it, it shocks me. Um, th during this period though, this phone is necessitated uh, to be, be able to work. And I've been able to connect with you, you all and so many other people in a variety of ways 
versus driving in a car hundreds of miles and spending so much time. So it's actually, in many ways, increased productivity. This has huge implications for telehealth and, and sharing best practices, meeting people in their home, uh, perhaps lowering costs and improving healthcare outcomes through a better managed care type of, of, of system. Huge implications for teleeducation. It's going to be very disruptive for the university system. But again, back to this idea of how do we move information quickly on virtual platforms that, yes, have a basis of relationship, aren't artificial, but nonetheless are using the technology to advance things quicker. quicker. And, and, and finally, um, telework. Um, again, I, I, I'm just wondering if the post-World War construct in America, whereby we took our massive uh, war movement and moved it into industrialization in the suburbs, built huge amounts of infrastructure, moved people out of cities, and everybody got a car. Uh, the uh, alignment of uh, preferences among baby boomers and millennials for smaller, more intimate, nurturing communities that have access nearby to walkable uh, retail, locally grown food, as well as amenities, uh, faith services, uh, as well as green space, that alignment you're already seeing in terms of housing and the way in which we're rethinking suburbia has huge implications, again, for federal subsidy for infrastructure. Uh, so this is gonna happen worldwide as well, but I think this is the deeper desire for, again, to be in interdependence in community, not, again, economic rush, a technology rush, toward no defined end that just keeps us getting more and more exhausted, but rather using this technology again for uh, solidarity. So that's, again, one of the, thing, uh, the big leaps I think that this crisis is going to uh, impose upon us. And if used smartly, it actually can lead us back to, again, uh, this n deeper notion of what it means to be in community, hopefully not only locally, but also internationally. I'm afraid our time has run out, but you have really set the stage for another I think conversation, um, and I have to admit, you know, reading the paper, listening to the news, you can—it's a little depressing. Um, but the, the conversation that that the two of you have just had really makes me feel better about the future and uh, about uh, our leaders. So thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you, FMC, for putting this together, and uh, I look forward to uh, continuing the conversation. Thank you, Bart. Thank Thanks. You. Thank you. Thank you, Bart.